many memories have come flooding back. I put this song on repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. It's starting to feel a lot like gay Christmas in Sydney right now and my guest on Out of the Box today will be a big part of the festivities. So Patrick Abood is presenting a highlight of the gay calendar on SBS this Saturday along with Tom Ballard, Magda Zemanski and I think Faustina and uh, I'm talking about the Mardi Gras parade. Patrick came up with the idea for the feed on SBS which has turned out loads of, quite frankly, amazing short documentaries. Welcome and Out of the Box, Patrick. Hey, Ash, how are you? I'm very well. Sorry, I was just reading a, a text while you were talking there. I'm here, I'm with you. Happy <laughs> yeah, actually, Gay Christmas. I, I will have to say, you have been one of the hardest guests I've ever had to, <laughs> to coordinate with because you are so busy at the moment. I'm so sorry. That's It's been that way, yeah. I mean, the week leading up to Gay Christmas is just as crazy as Christmas itself, if not a million times more crazy. But, you know, it's amazing. It's the best time of the year for me. It's so much fun. After the parade, you've got a lot of stuff happening on SBS in terms of small documentaries. Have you been putting those ones together, the stories that we're going to see on Sunday yeah, on SBS? Yeah, and that's the thing. I think a lot of people that like tune into the broadcast probably don't even know if they're watching for the first time that that's part of what we do. So, of course, there's a parade and there's all the kind of glitz and glamour, but for the last six weeks I've been kind of traipsing around the country with another amazing director-producer, Emma, um, making some really great stories about you know incredible people in the community that don't often get... We don't often hear from them, essentially. Uh, what are a couple of the stories that we might not see coming that are going to be uh, played on, on Sunday? Um, one that's really close to my heart and very special is I spent some time up in Tyree with um, a Lebanese family and it's a story about what it's like coming out being from an Arabic-speaking background but also like growing up in a country town. So it's kind of like a double whammy for this girl, Tanya, and her parents. And it's so rare that you hear from parents from you know the Middle Eastern community um, being vocal and like publicly accepting their kids and doing that you know i mean accepting a child as being gay in the middle eastern community and the arabic speaking community is huge because it's very rare but then taking a step further and advocating for that acceptance for other people in the community is huge so tanya and her parents are doing that and they're speaking like publicly on national television for the first time so they've taken a big risk in doing it and it was incredibly humbling to meet them they're an amazing family really beautiful story and i also saw one in the um in the kind of the the what's coming up video and I actually by the end of the video I had a little bit of a tear in my eye there was this beautiful <laughs> moment mush. where it's um there's this uh, group of people with intellectual disabilities kind of voguing oh they're so adorable beautiful. like Tom and Sharitha are just the most incredible boys I've met for a very long time basically that's that's about the Rainbow Bridge Social Club which um, Sharitha's mum he has an intellectual disability um, and he's gay identifies as gay and he went to his mum and said hey I'm gay and I like boys and she was like well shit where do I like how's he going to date people because you know for someone like that getting on an app getting on Grindr or Scruff or whatever there are so many vulnerabilities there and it's it's not as kind of easy as it sounds being to just jump on and chat with someone so she set up this club where she can where they've invited lots of young people who identify as LGBTI um, to come along who also have intellectual disabilities of course to meet each other essentially so it's kind of like a real life old school dating service 
And we oh, went along so to the cute. yeah, we I went along it. to the launch of it, and it was just like it, you know, it was adorable because there's this kind of innocence, um, which is so beautiful to kind of watch play out. And we followed, um, we interviewed Tom and Charitha separately, and they were both really into each other, but they didn't know that we were talking to them. So when they see it on Sunday, they're going <gasps> to find out what they said about each other, which is super cute. And <laughs> that's they're amazing. really yeah, they're You're really a into each other. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> we we're playing cupid. It was so fun. Oh, I love it. And there was this beautiful moment where one of them said, "I'm not sure about the names," but one of them said, "I'm looking." for my prince charming that's Charitha and it was oh yeah and, I just, uh, and he's well, genuinely well. genuinely charming himself gorgeous mm-hmm. boy yep alright well uh, we'll be playing a little bit of a little bit of prince in a second and so I think maybe it might be good to, to tell us a little bit about your first ever Mardi Gras oh god I feel like that was decades ago. It was actually almost a decade ago um, so basically I was totally in the closet um, the first Mardi Gras that I went in and some but like a bunch of friends and I were like, well, we really want to partake in this, but how are we going to do it? Because most of us were Arabs, Arab Australians, and um, most of us were not out. So we're, we're like, we can't go in the parade because obviously it's going to out us. So we decided to basically all dress up as sheikhs, um, which means that, you know, obviously we were covered head to toe um, and nobody knew who we were. So it was this liberating moment where a bunch of us, about 20 of us were, you know, on the street, completely covered up, but inside, like under those robes, were so, so free. That feeling was incredible because it was the first time that together we were marching um, as a bunch of friends. But for us, it was being really public because people didn't really know who we were, but we felt like we were part of something so much bigger for the first time ever. Yeah. And for a little bit of context, I guess seeing a flotilla of... Uh, of queer shakes dancing down Oxford <laughs> Street. It's a little bit rebellious because, I mean, there are places in the world where it is still illegal to be gay, and yeah, especially absolutely. in the Arab world. Absolutely. And that's why, I mean, that's why I kind of brought up that story before because, you know, where I come from, um, you know, in many parts of the Arab world, it is, as you said, still illegal and it's punishable with imprisonment and in some cases even death. So it's, it's really serious business. And I think here in the Western world, particularly in Australia, the fact that we can be so visible in the, in the queer community is great. But I think we also forget about the fact that that still exists. So, you know, a lot of our parents, a lot of our families take those ideas from the homeland and they still live with those here. So it makes it really hard for young people here to come out to their families, just to give it a, a bit of kind of context. So yeah, it's visibility is so, so important now more so than ever. And for now, we're going to listen to a little bit of Prince and then we'll come back in a little bit and talk a little bit about your coming out story. And we're going to have a little cry while it's on oh, air. Oh, yeah. <laughs> going to be weeping all over the electronics. Let's hope I don't short any circuits. You listen to FBI 94.5 Out of the Box with Patrick Abood. I never meant to call you Never meant to call you when you pain.
Prince could go on. <laughs> and on and on. Prince will never die. Yeah. This is true. You know, I couldn't even find him on Spotify this morning. When yeah, I was he doesn't trying. have any of his tracks on Spotify. People yeah. were saying that um, last week when he was here on tour. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I think he, he was the one who said at the beginning, no one's going to make any money out of the internet. And recently he's come out saying, look, I told you so. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> Prince, we know. It seems like such a kind of downer track to start on. But it, 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 that, that track is so important to my life for so many reasons. But particularly because it's basically like the pinnacle moment <clears throat> um, when, when I came out, when my parents found out I was gay, it was like, I came home, I was living with my sister at the time, and like, opened a bottle of whiskey, sat in the lounge room, it was 3am, the coming out story is epic, I can't go through it because it will take us three years, but um, <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm kind of tempted I can, now I can to tell you a little, I can tell you a little bit, but okay. um, yeah, basically I kind of, essentially my parents didn't know, they found out, um, and I was the kind of guy that was going around to my mates at the time saying, you know, like, you don't need to come out to your parents, um, particularly a lot of my um, fellow Arab mates who are also gay. Um, just be the kind of person you need to be, be a good son, be a good daughter, whatever, and, you know, live your life. Mm. It's too hard otherwise. And going from that to then them finding out, I didn't actually tell them. They found out in a really roundabout way, and then I basically How? was forced to come out. Uh, and um, what, what age are you? Because you, you were in the first Mardi Gras that you went to, was uh, you were like 24. So when did yeah, you actually come out? Uh, a few years after that. So it was kind of like... Was late 20s. Yeah, so like 20, really living, living yeah, your life. Yeah, pretty not much. not really worrying about... Looping your parents in. So no. what what kind of reaction did you get from your parents after you had finally told them? It was pretty bad. Basically, my mother behaved like someone had died in the family. She was wailing, like literally on the floor, wailing like someone had died. Um, and my dad, like I'd enter a room and my dad would just walk out of the room. He wouldn't even be in the same room as me. So it was really, really heavy. But I think for them it was more so because, you know, in my family I was a bit sort of like the golden child and, you know, I, I went to university and, like, you know, started my career and they were really kind of happy and, and proud of that. And I think they, they had this massive expectation and they had this dream for me that was very different to my dream, obviously. Mm. And when they heard that, they just thought, oh, he's not going to get married. We're not going to have a big, amazing gay Arab... Oh, sorry. <laughs> a big, amazing Arab wedding. They might still have I mean, a gay, hopefully, amazing Hopefully wedding. they will have that now. Um <laughs> And, you know, he's not going to have kids. So I guess their dream for me was a bit shattered and it just took them a really long time to see through that, to see through the guff. Grieving their idea of you. Yeah, yeah, totally. But then they finally realised that I'm still me. You know, I'm still the same guy. Um, Mm. Nothing's changed about me. That's just part of me that they had to learn to understand. Now they're incredible, you know, many years on. But basically that night I came home and I, I kind of walked into the house and I just felt so, that feeling that people talk about when there's this, this massive sense of relief when you kind of come out, I, I, I finally knew what that felt like because it felt like a, a world had literally been lifted off my shoulders. Did you feel physically lighter? I really did. And I, I basically opened a bottle of scotch, light on the lounge and pressed play on the remote um, for the stereo in our lounge room. It was a really old school um, stereo with a really old school remote. Um, and there was a disc in the CD player and it was Prince. And I pressed play and Purple Rain played. <laughs> And that's the reason why that's my kind of coming out song because I sat in the lounge room, it was 4am on my own, um, you know, feeling really light and pretty amazing about the world in that moment. But there was really no one around to share it with. It was just me and Prince and and a glass of whiskey. So it was quite special. And I've never forgotten that track because of that particular moment. That's truly beautiful. And I think we're going to take another cool track in a second. So um, now... You have brought in some Royston Murphy. It's kind of the other extreme of that story I just told about coming out. Basically, uh, many years later, I moved to Berlin with my partner at the time who was German, um, and we bought a bus, and we 
kind of decked out a bus and lived in a bus in a park in the middle of Berlin. Stop and, it. Yeah, it was the best. Like, that is the, the best dream. experience. Yeah. It was pretty great. We still have the bus. We're not together anymore, but we still have the bus. Um, and at the time, um, Rosie Murphy just kind of kind of came to the fore. And my friend, first friend I really made in, in, in Germany, Andre, who's this crazy Czech woman who lives in Berlin, incredible, incredible human, would come to the bus every day. And I wasn't working, so we'd kind of crank Rosie in and dance around the bus <laughs> and just have the best time. And then that became a thing. And then other friends came over. So we'd have these great parties in the bus. And they were all kicked off with a track from Rosie Murphy. She became our like party starter. Lovely. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. Patrick Wood is my guest today. My name's Ash Berdebez and here is Her Majesty Rosie Murphy. I turned the other way I never turned you down You turned me on Don't speak out every meaning I don't belong to you You don't belong to me So don't hold on too tight
tuned in to Out of the Box on FBR 94.5. Patrick Abud is my guest today. My name is Ash Bertabez. That was a bit of Russian Murphy for you. Oh my god, I can totally picture all of the people on the, was it like a purple and pink bus that you had? Yes, just Queen. Just dancing around? Yes, Queen. Oh. Yes, Queen is all I have to yes. say to Rosie Murphy. What a babe. <laughs> you introduce her perfectly, her majesty. She's royalty to me. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, um, what's the word for it? Someone who can do all of the things? Like, oh, she's basically a polymath. Like, just her outfits her. are ridiculous. Mm, yeah. So ridiculous. Anyway, on top of the fact that you bought in some Roche and Murphy, I mean, you're after my heart or something like that because you've bought in <laughs> a few Icelandic tracks. And if anyone knows anything about me, they know I love Iceland. Yeah, likewise. And you Pretty too. obsessed with mm-hmm. that place. How it's did incredible. it start? How did it start for you? It, um, I feel like we're at AA, but it's yeah, like Iceland, I know. I feel like, Anonymous. I, I feel like we're kind of going up and down. It's like we're a bit, we're a bit manic depressive on the radio yeah. today. <laughs> um, I first discovered Sigaross um, just by chance. I think I heard something on the radio, actually. Um, and I was like, wow, that sounds really cool. That was years and years ago. And that was sort of how I discovered that sound. But then I became quite obsessed with Sigaross, you know, listened to it over and over and over. And <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and then when I went on to discover other Icelandic artists and just that kind of really expansive, immersive sound, you know, as you said before, you just kind of, you can swim in it. Like, you, you know, you drown in it in the most beautiful way. Um, and this song in particular has a little story attached to it that I will never forget. Basically, we drove the bus to, um, well, from Central Europe all the way to North Africa. Um, and at one point, we're in the Rift Mountains. We just arrived in Morocco. Um, there was a problem with the bus. It just started snowing. Oh, God. It was like, um, you know, it, sun was about to set. It was the end of the day. We had no idea what the hell was wrong with the bus. But we're going up a massive ascend, and the bus just slowly, slowly died the further we got up the hill. And we'd picked up these two American hitchhikers on the way because this hill was incredible. Like, it was really freaking hard to, to get up up the top. So they jumped in. So there was the four of us. We'd just met. They'd literally been in the bus for like 20 minutes. And then the bus slowly started to conk out. And it was really bizarre, like not a word of a lie. It was the most beautiful moment. Even though we were in horrible situation, it became really beautiful because of this track. This was playing on the, uh, you know, on the sound system in the bus. And as we got literally to the end of the ascend, the sun started to set. The snow was like still falling. It was beautiful. And this track just crescendoed. And just when the bus finally conked out, like it was a, probably like... 10 or 12 minute progression from when it started to die until it finally died, got to the top just as the track ended and the sunset. It was like... How I've, could this have turned out to be beautiful? I mean, that is it, my nightmare. It, that's the thing. That's That that story, like, I'll never forget because we were so stressed about the bus. Like, yeah. like how, what the hell are we going to do? We're in the middle of nowhere. Like, we just got to the country um, and we had no idea what to do. And we had these two strange Americans in the bus with us. But all of a sudden, it in just... In Rift Mountains, so obviously yeah, they're after weed. Exactly. <laughs> Well, so are we, but that's another story. <laughs> and, you know, and it just became this incredibly beautiful moment that I will never forget. And we just all got out, stood on the, the, the top of the mountain and bought our eyes out. Oh, you guys, <laughs> honestly, I'm just going to play the song now. It's, it's very, very beautiful. Yeah. Enjoy it. Song about uh, getting a nosebleed, running around in circles, having a real good time. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick Abud on Out of the Box today.
Tries not to cry. <laughs> Cries every time. I am time. crying. <laughs> yep. Patrick Abood on Out of the Box. His eyes have gone all glossy and so have mine because that is such a beautiful song. I promise I'm not a depressed person. I'm actually a really happy guy. I just like really sad music. <laughs> Look, I think I think that song is like utterly triumphant. And the next song that we're bringing on by Olfer Arnold has that similar kind of sweeps you into an emotional frenzy. Really knows how to do it. Yeah. What a guy. Yep. You you oh you were saying before when we were off air, you've interviewed him as well. And like, you know, he just has this incredibly enigmatic presence and mm. he's such a beautiful spirit totally generous and yeah. you know you, n- you never have to be if you're going around doing as many interviews as i'm sure he does you could be just a normal person but he puts everything he can into every conversation and he's yeah, just absolutely I don't know, he's just a whole human you know he's just a really nice guy beautiful man yeah the, he's actually well i kind of there's a nice progression because it was sigaros and then you know yonsi did his solo thing and i went to see one of yonsi's very first ever solo shows um in germany and um Oliver was the support. Um, oh, you're kidding. Yeah, it was really, really special. Wow. And I had no idea who he was then. I don't think anyone really did because he just kind of started playing publicly. And um, he was selling merch after the show and I bought, I bought uh, he had vinyl for sale, so I bought a record um, and went back to the bus and played it and was like, well, I can't swear, but yeah, whoa, far like, out. Far out. Well, you, like, you can just give a, a, one of the tracks on the album, Fork. Fork, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the first track I heard was on, which was on this um uh, 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 on on vinyl was three oh five five, and it just blew me away. Just its kind of epicness and and you know uh, majesty. Yeah. Um. And then I saw him a few times again because he was playing quite a lot in Germany. And then got to meet him in Vienna. He played this really beautiful gig in a tiny little um, cathedral venue, which was stunning. 
Um, and then I saw him again when he came to Sydney just um, last year, the first show we did here at the basement. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you were at that, but it was really funny because he had, we had to actually turn the air conditioning off, yeah. shut down the fridges in the venue because he was playing so softly that the aircon was louder than his music. Because, I mean, he's got he's got felt under the piano, you know, where, where the um, things hit the strings. Yeah. He, he treats the piano before he uses it, kind of like Nils Fram. So they put felt, like the fabric, behind that so... The, it's not kind of like this big grand Steinway. It's, so it's kind of this soft beautiful, and kind of endearing, delicate, yeah. Yeah, it, it's definitely definitely more of a more of a creepy grand library sound than a kind of like grandiose cinema kind of thing. Yeah, but he's yeah. a pretty 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 special guy in, in my story, I guess too, because he told me about lots of other um, Icelandic artists too. So the As discovery, he music. exactly, the discovery oh, okay. kind of continued. So it was sort of perfect. Mm. Yeah. And if there's one thing that Icelandic artists uh, tend to do well, and of course you shouldn't lump them all into a big group of people, but obviously they do a lot of really great kind of symphonic meets electronic yeah. and Oliver Arnold's is one of one of my favourites in that kind of Ash respect. and I are totally crushing each other in this studio right I know, now. It's right? disgusting. Yeah, we're holding hands. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. It's Oliver Arnold's I've never met someone who also loves Icelandic music so much. Yeah, it's exactly. Great. My, heart, my heart is bursting right now. It's um, it's actually a little bit painful. Alright, let's just listen to this song and I'll, uh, I'll recover. I'm Patrick Abud on Out of the Box today. My name's Ash Bertabez. You listen to FBI.
Bowls oh. in the studio, of course. Deep breaths. Wow. Look, this has been a really emotional time for me, Patrick. I think you'll understand. And I don't think it's going to stop being emotional because we've got a song by Nick Cave coming up next. Yeah. And um, look, pretty moving stuff. But I kind of want to get a little bit of background before we uh, hit the old play button. So the ship song. Yeah, pretty um, amazing song. Very, very beautiful song. How old were you when you first heard this song? Um, I was very young. And when I first heard it, I thought it was terrible. Um, there's a story attached to that. Um, basically, it's, it's quite sad, but, you know, there's time, a lot of times past, so, you know, it's okay to kind of share it now. Um, my oldest brother, who I was very close to, was killed in a motorcycle accident. Mm. And one of the, one of the um, most incredible memories I have is the night before he was getting married, um, he was playing this song in his room, and I heard it, and I went in, and I was like, what the hell is this? It's awful. And he sat me down and gave me this kind of like Nick Cave education. He was really, really into, he played in a kind of punk band and he was really into that, um, into that sort of sound and everything that I wasn't into when I was younger, there's 10 years between us. And I didn't really understand that at all. So he kind of sat me down and yeah, it was this incredible like education about life through Nick Cave's music that he was so invested in. And then I kind of sat down and we listened to a few tracks and he played this and this was his favorite um, Nick Cave track, the ship song. So that's why I've chosen this. And it's, it's beautiful that he actually could sit you down and say, no, I care about this artist enough and I care about you enough that uh, you're going to have to be educated. Yeah, it was I'm really, not just going to say, oh, well, horses for courses. This is not, this is not your business. You it know? was a really, really beautiful moment. And, you know, it, loss is horrible. And, you know, th- this was 17 years ago now. And, you know, I've had a lot of time to go through the grief and, and sort of come to terms with what, what it is and how it's shaped and informed my life. But he was incredibly important to my life and still is every moment of the day. So, you know, when I hear a song like this now, I don't get sad, I get really happy because I remember that beautiful moment that I shared and that kind of education around Nick Cave that I had. And now I'm also equally obsessed with Nick Cave and, you know, have seen every show he's ever done in Australia. Um, and I understand really clearly now why when, you know, back in the day I was younger, um, my brother was so into him and, you know, had so much respect for his music. You can see why. That's one of the beautiful things about music is that you can commune with people who are gone through it. Absolutely. Here we are. It's the ship song, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds on FBI 94.5. Patrick Abud is my guest on Out of the Box today. Come sail your ships around me and burn your bridges down We make a little history, baby Every time you come around Come loose your dogs upon me And let your hair hang down You are a little mystery to me Every time you call around We talk about it all night long We define our mind Tumbling down 
studio with Patrick Abud, who is a journalist with SBS and in all other ways that you can be a journalist. <laughs> and uh, he's making us feel all the feel today on Out of the Box with a little bit of uh, the ship song by Nick Cave. We had some Olafaranos before that and also some Cigarros and I got some texts in. There's there's people out there feeling feels, so I hope you're happy now. I hope they're, <laughs> I hope they're, I hope they're feeling the happy feels, not the sad feels. <laughs> well... I think it is time for us to uh, take a little bit of a change of pace because our next song is going to be a bit of a bit of Arab dancey music, is it? Is it got a bit of a dancey vibe to it? What are we going to next? I can't remember. Anna Ulash. Yeah, it's Sheb Mummy. Um, it's kind of yeah, it's euphoric. It's like uplifting. Mm-hmm. It's very like it's kind of almost gospel like. Yeah. yeah. So your background, your mum's Lebanese, your dad's Palestinian. Yep. Do you have you grown up feeling very Lebanese Palestinian? I reckon 99% of me is Arab and 1% of me is Australian, purely because, um, yeah, we grew up in a very Arab household. My grandparents didn't speak any English, so we were all forced to kind of speak Arabic in order to communicate with them, and that was really great because, obviously, you know, I wouldn't have the language now. Um, And all of our values, I guess, come from our culture and our background, and family is something that is incredibly important, um, you know, within Arab culture. And I'm really grateful for that because it's really shaped who I am today. Um, And... When you're talking about family, one thing that was really important for me growing up is because dad is a 48 refugee, there was a mass exodus in 48 of Palestinians, um, you know, due to the Israeli occupation. And um, 
he went to Lebanon when he was three and the only memory he ever had, which he told us about, was he was held, he was in his mother's arms, my grandmother, who's now passed away, and she was shot in the leg while they were escaping, essentially. And that's the only memory he has because people have recounted that to him that were escaping at the same time. Well, they weren't really escaping, they were essentially forced out. Um, and that kind of stayed with me. My dad told me that story when I was like 15 and I was like, I really want to know where my dad's from and I really want to know my dad's family because at that time, all of his family were scattered all around the world. Um, so yeah, many years later, I went back and I lived in, um, in the West Bank for just over a year and wow. I um, went to discover my family's, well, discover my father's family, try to find them because even though they were scattered around the world, there was like obviously cousins and extended family that were still in the region, most of them living in Haifa where he was born. Mm. So using your journalistic skills of tracking people down, did it, yes. did it help? Did that help? It did indeed, of course. You know, I, I guess I knew how to, you know, um, go through the, the, the right research avenues um, because there's no records course mm. and it's incredibly hard so I started going through the phone book funnily enough because that was the easiest way just to look at surnames and you know came across many many families who purported to be family but actually weren't because of this thing of like oh he's a westerner you know he Maybe might have money he and some money get us or some out of here or yeah, yeah. So I got through all that, and anyway, to cut a very that's, long that's story also, short, that's really sad as well. It is because you you want to be able to help it's people, out of desperation. but it's also you know don't use me, don't exploit. Pretty me much, to, I'm trying to find my family. <laughs> yeah, I understand it though because it, there's also yeah. some people in really desperate situations. I mean, being in Gaza was the most eye-opening thing I've ever experienced in my life. Did you find it hard to move around personally? Um, no, because I have an Australian passport. Mm. I mean, my pal- my name surname is very Palestinian, but I have an Australian passport, so it does make things a lot easier. Um, and I have two passports. I have a passport that I use when I travel as a journalist and I have a passport, which is my general Australian passport. So they didn't actually know other countries I'd been to when they checked my passport because it doesn't have the same stamps as the passport I use as a journalist. Ah, the little tricks, the little tricks of the trade. Um, yeah, to cut a really long story short, basically I spent um, five or five, about five and a half months trying to track my anyone from my dad's family down. Couldn't really do it. Didn't have success going through all of the um, institutions um, and that kind of thing in the sort of, you know, the, the usual research channels. And then one day I was um, sitting in a cafe in Haifa and having a chat with a really awesome um, Israeli friend that I'd made. And we're still friends till now. She's an incredible woman. Um, and the guy that owned the cafe overheard our conversation. I was telling her about the fact that I was really frustrated because I've been here for five months and I haven't met a single cousin or relative of my dad's and I really want to try and reconnect them. Anyway, he heard the conversation, brings the phone over 10 minutes later and says, hey, there's someone that wants to speak to you. This is all in Arabic. And I started kind of shaking because I was like really nervous and put the phone in my ear and the guy on the other end said, hey, I'm Elias, I'm your dad's first cousin. Um, And he lived 10 minutes away from where we were. So I thought, oh, this is just another dude that's, you know, trying to take the piss. I left it um, because I had to go back to work in, in the West Bank. And then about a week later, I traveled back to Hofa and um, I'd arranged to meet Elias at his house, got there and it was the most incredible moment. There was 42 of my father's relatives at the house oh waiting God, to meet me. Kidding. He had rounded up in that week that I was away because um, we stayed in touch on the phone, of course, so, uh, you know, we chatted and stuff all of them to be at the house. So I walked in, they had like the big Arabic drum, they had a big feast set out on the table. It was like a wedding. It was insane. Did you cry? I did cry. I'm crying a little bit I'm a the cry. story. <laughs> I did cry. Um, they also had three brides lined up on the lounge ready for me to, um, you know, interview and meet to see if that 
I would be a potential suitor for their door. <laughs> that is so full on. For their brides. It was wow. pretty funny. Nothing could prepare you for that. No. And then and then basically that was when Skype started to kind of come about and I Skyped my dad back in Sydney and that was the first time in 60 years that he had seen anyone from his Palestinian family. Amazing. And they were all there in the room. So it was a really emotional moment. And now they're, they're in touch. They've been in touch ever since that moment. What kind of things do you talk about when you're looking at someone for the first time in 60 years? You've been separated from your family for that long. What kind of things do you say? Do you remember? Yeah, it was really, I, I had, I remember back to the moment and I had the same kind of feelings. I was like, shit, what are they going to ask each other? Because they know nothing about one another. Like, oh, how are you? Yeah. What, they, were just, like? they just kind of, st- like the Skype, there was a quite a bad connection. The Skype screen opened and it was like, they stared at each other for a good 30 seconds just to kind of make sure that they had similar features and it was real because it was so surreal for them. And then it was like, oh, you know, how many kids did you have? And you know, where they live and what are they doing? And it was all about family. It was really, really great. And you know, once a month now they, um, they call each other and they've been in touch ever since, which is so awesome. That's beautiful. And so why in that case is Cheb Mummy going to be happening? This track was the track that I listened to driving to my uncle's house that day. And it was really beautiful because you drive through um, the mountains going out of Ramallah and, you know, there's just endless olive groves, endless, endless olive groves. And the olive tree is really symbolic for Palestinians for lots of reasons. It's a symbol of peace. Um, and this song came on the radio while we were driving um, up to my, to my uncle Elisa's place. And for that reason, I've just never, yeah, never forgotten it. It's always attached to that moment where I reconnected my dad to his ancestors. Gorgeous. You listen out of the box on FBI 94.5. Patrick Abud is my guest in the studio with me today. And I want to وعلاش يا الدنيا وهديتيني فالغربة مهموم مهموم أنا وعلاش وعلاش عليا وهديتيني فالغربة مهموم مهموم نتمشي على قدري وحسابي حسابي مقادر روحي وعز رجلي عز كلامي ما نهدر في الغيبي ما ندير بين الرجال آه يا خويا
Isn't it? It's like, yeah, put your hands oh, up, everybody. So Clap your hands and sing with me. Yeah, I just, I just imagine this. You know, if you're gonna make this the it's movie of your life, and it's you, pretty cheesy. You, yeah, in a good way. <laughs> but you find all of your, all of your forty relatives in a room with a feast and, and wives for you, and yeah. you walk in the door, and this song plays. It's the wedding scene at the end of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty that's much. it. Oh, so good. Which was what exactly what that moment was like. And if you want to listen to this online and, uh, you know, play it for yourself, it's Cheb Mummy with Anna Ulash, I think is how you pronounce it. Probably don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah, that's close enough. Well, we're getting up to the top of the hour and uh, we're also getting close to Saturday, which is when you're going to be presenting the Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. And yeah, on Sunday, wait. people can watch a lot of the stories that you've put together from members of the queer community, of the very vast queer community in Australia, Indeed. all the different stories. And one thing that I love about your work is that, like, I mean, you've done you've done stories on BACA, as in Bikers Against Child Abuse, on um, Lolitas, like the people who dress kind of doll-like and... People who are like the the fa'afine is that how you fa'afine? Fa'afine. Yeah. It's the so, third gender in um, Samoan culture. Yeah, and these are all kind of stories, and especially with the stories that are gonna you're gonna be seeing on um on Sunday. These are all kind of stories where you have to get this kind of this trust from people who are part of the story. This kind of access that is usually, almost always, unprecedented. How do you make it so well? people will actually trust you to tell their story and to do it justice. It's really funny, Ash. Like, people ask me that um, quite a lot. And I don't really have, a you know, a kind of, this is the answer and this is how I do it. There's no technique as such. It's more so, like, I think about what I'm like when someone asks me a question. And, you know, so I think about when someone's talking to me, how I listen, and then the questions that I want to ask and what that kind of provokes. And I think, when you kind of meet someone for the first time, if you generally just give them the sense that you're a genuine, honest person and, you know, you have good intentions, I think that's the best place to start. And it is really about just kind of spending the time to give the other person that sense that they can really trust you and that you do have good intentions and you're coming from a good place. And that's just about being honest. Like, you know, a lot of, I mean, the media landscape is pretty nasty can be pretty nasty you know generally speaking speed makes people nasty not speed the drug as in the need to do things quickly. yeah exactly and that's the thing you know i don't i don't do kind of churn and burn sort of journalism I, I make features and docos which i really am passionate about and i love human stories and that's the reason why i guess it's kind of become my thing and i invest a lot of energy into going and meeting with people and you know p- developing that trust i guess or developing that rapport in order for them to feel comfortable so it's not just a matter of picking up a phone and saying you know hey can you do this interview at midday today i want to ask you this or questions about this it's more like this is a really interesting thing that's happening this is a really issue really interesting issue we need to cover this family is t- attached to it find the family go to the house meet with them have a conversation don't take the cameras along with the recording devices 
go meet them again, have a coffee with them. You know, so I might meet someone three or four times before we even have an interview. And it takes that level of um, rapport and that level of, I guess, humanity, you know, to, to let them or allow them feel like they can trust you. Yeah. I guess it's the, the alternative is that it's kind of like when you're walking down the street and someone, you know, has a clipboard and you go, they want something from me. The first thing you think is they want something from me yeah. and you're on the back foot. But if you don't <laughs> act like, you know, I'm here, I want something from you. No, then people look, will trust you. It's a it's a privilege. It's a, it's really humbling to to know that people do trust me in that way um, to give me that kind of access. And I think if you consistently show that you do do them justice and that you do tell the truth and that you you let them speak for themselves, a lot of the work that I do has none of me in it at all. Um, and I think that plays a role in it too because other people go and look at things that I've done and they see they see oh well look you know, he kind of lets people speak for themselves. And I think that's the strongest tool in storytelling. Let people tell their own stories. Don't tell it for them. Beautiful. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show, Patrick. I've had such a lovely time. You've put in some beautiful music and some beautiful stories. And if you do uh, want to listen back to the show again or you missed bits, we're going to podcast it. So uh, subscribe to Out of the Box with Ash Berdebez in any of your podcast apps. And don't forget to tune in Sunday night, 8.30, SBS. Yeah, absolutely. Little plug. The SBS Mardi Gras broadcast is going to be a-gazing. It's going to be a-gazing. <laughs> Happy Gay it. Christmas. Happy Gay Christmas, everyone. And we've got this one last song by the Irrepressibles. Quickly, why did you want to bring oh, this up? Yeah, very, very, very quick story. So this, this this band is one of my absolute favorite bands, kind of newish discovery, um, much like the newish discovery of love that I have at the moment. I've met oh. an incredible man um, who is literally the man of my dreams, a beautiful human. Um, and yeah, this song kind of, I don't know, encapsulates everything I feel for him. So this is for him. Anthony is his name. Shout-outs to Anthony. Oh, you're blushing. I am blushing. He's a gorgeous man. It's so nice to be in love. Isn't it just? Thanks, Ash. Thanks, Pat. If I asked you now, will you be my prince? Will you?
Another epic tune to take you out of out of the box. The last pa- the last hour of tunes curated by a special guest. That was the Irrepressibles. Uh, you can listen back to the show and find previous episodes with exciting people from around Sydney and Australia and the world at fbiradio.com. Just click on programs and out of the box with Ash Birdbez. You're now hanging out with me, Beth Salglish, for the next couple of hours on lunch. And I've got some great tunes in the bag for you. Coming up, we've got some Daywave and Fascinator, a brand new one from FKA Twigs as well. Let's kick off with someone who is quite close to our hearts here at FBI Radio, Lucien Blomkamp. He is a Melbourne producer that we sent to Iceland, not just willy-nilly, that could be kind of random, but we sent him as part of the Northern Lights competition uh, where we he got to play at the Iceland Airwaves Festival, which is a massive international one, uh, and collaborate with local artists, take in the scenery and record some music over there. So very close to our hearts. He's got new music out, which is very exciting. So this this is it. It's called The Overman on FBI. Mm-hmm. 